I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. The theme of this week's show is immigration. My guest today is Emiliano Lerda, the Executive Director of Justice for Our Neighbors in Nebraska. Originally from Argentina, Emiliano was drawn to America's Midwest because its agricultural environment reminded him of his native Cordoba province. At the University of Northern Iowa, where he received a Bachelor of Arts in Communication Studies, he became the first international student elected student body president. Emiliano earned his doctorate of law at Drake University Law School, after which he worked as government relations manager for the Iowa Corn Growers Association. A licensed attorney, Emiliano joined Justice for Our Neighbors Nebraska as executive director in January 2011. Emiliano, thanks uh, for coming to the show. Thank you for having me, Stuart. Very nice to be with you. Could you tell me a little bit about Justice for Our Neighbors, its mission and the activities that you engage in? So Justice for Our Neighbors uh, was started in 1999. Uh, Our mission is to welcome immigrants to the community by providing immigration legal services, education, and advocacy. Think of us as a nonprofit law firm. Uh, We currently have um, approximately 20 full-time employees. Uh, 11 of those are uh, full-time attorneys. And then we have approximately three legal service providers that are approved by the Department of Justice to provide immigration legal services. With our team uh, last year, we provided services in more than 2,700 cases. Now, that has been, you know, very, uh, we're very happy about the fact that we can help in so many cases, but the reality is we're not driven by that number. If we were driven by the number of cases that we're handling any given year, we would be in in, in some way uh, motivated to take the easier cases that would take a lot less time to handle. But we're not. We feel uh, we have a deep uh, responsibility, a moral responsibility um, to to be good stewards of the brain trust that we have. We have very capable, very passionate, uh, very professional attorneys, immigration attorneys, and we want to make good use of their talent. And that means that we would, we would take the complicated cases, that we would take the asylum, you know, complicated asylum petitions, the uh, complicated removal defense cases. Uh, so our primary area of practice focuses on in, in immigration law. But within immigration law, we focus on what is called humanitarian-based immigration and family-based immigration. So people uh, that may qualify for a U visa if you're a victim of domestic violence or sexual assault or uh, qualifying crime, then and you collaborate with the, with the authorities, you may actually qualify for what is called a U visa. A victim of domestic violence that is married to uh, a citizen or a lawful permanent resident who is a is abuser, uh, that victim of domestic violence that is married to that abuser who is a lawful permanent resident or a citizen can apply for a VAWA visa. We also uh, help in refugee cases, uh, although that's not our area of focus because there's another nonprofit, uh, the Lutheran Family Services, that focuses more. They're 
immigration legal practices to help um, refugees. So um, we also do other humanitarian cases would be asylum cases, for example. Uh, we also do family-based immigration and family-based immigration is when, when there's somebody in the family that has status and there's a close familial relationship and based on that very close, very narrow, very narrowly tailored uh, fami familial relationship, um, they can apply for adjustment of status for somebody else in the family. So those are the type of cases we focus in really helping the most vulnerable. And I don't say that to just as a soundbite. Um, I, I, what I mean by that is there is a, a segment of our of our population uh, of their, their immigrants and uh, they may not have the economic means to actually pay for a private attorney. The interesting thing about immigration law is that is not when people are charged with immigration law violations, those are 99 out of 100 times are usually uh, administrative violations. There are certain federal crimes that people could be charged with, but they're not usually charged with those crimes. And the reason uh, that they're not charged with a crime uh, when they're found to be here in violation of immigration laws is because if you charge somebody with a crime, the constitutional right to an attorney into a free attorney, if you can afford one, will attach. And so what people don't realize is that when people are charged or being deported with, they're you know, charged with immigration violations and they're being deported and they go to an immigration judge, very, very often, and you know, so a, a great deal of, of immigrants go before an immigration judge without an attorney because if they cannot pay for one, and they're not lucky enough to have a nonprofit take it or a private attorney that is willing to take it pro bono, uh, then they're out of luck and they're in front of a judge without an attorney. On the other side, trust me, the government has trained seasoned attorneys on the other side, right? And so the other side does have representation all the time. And so the work that we do, I think, is extremely important in terms of making sure that a lot of people that cannot afford an attorney that are immigrants in this country, they have access to the justice system and they have somebody there that can walk them through this maze of broken and outdated immigration laws so that on the other side, they can walk away with some sort of a status that can give them peace of mind and can give them an opportunity to actually go get a, a, a better job or the same job, but not be afraid. I think being afraid is the worst um, you know, component of, of having to live in, 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 in the shadows. So that's an interesting illumination of the legal process. And I'm wondering what other myths or misperceptions there are about the, the legal side or the, the, the process side of immigration. When I mentioned, you know, the mission of justice for our neighbors, I mentioned immigration, legal services, education, and advocacy. So we do a lot of education. And this is what I'm sharing with you is really part of one of our main presentations for the basically community at large, with, which, which will cover what we call Immigration 101. Uh, and then there is also another presentation that we usually do for immigrants that will include information about, you know, their rights, their responsibilities, and then also information about the process and information about safety planning, how to prepare legally um, just in case somebody in the family gets detained suddenly and they cannot, you know, they go, they go to work and they cannot come back uh, to their home. Uh, what do the children do? If that person was the head of, of the household, how are they going to make ends meet? Uh, if both adults are detained and deported and there's minors involved, uh, what, 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 what will those minors do? 
Will they stay with a, an aunt, an uncle, or a neighbor? Do you want to have that conversation today with your children, even though you're maybe robbing them from their normal childhood, you know, and they'll be worried probably and, and, and crying? I mean, this is a, these are conversations that are happening around the dinner tables. But going back to your question in terms of the uh, myth, um, one one interesting myth is, uh, well, several. One myth is that people are choosing, you know, are cutting corners, that immigrants are not here with papers, that don't have documents, um, were lazy, that they were not willing to stand in line, that they were cutting corners. And, you know, I think that's a huge myth because when you think about the fact that people are risking their life and many of them are dying, crossing the desert and crossing the border uh, without documents. And they're, they're bringing their children sometimes and they're putting their children at risk. Uh, trust me, if there was a line, if there was a bureaucratic process that they would have to go through and, 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 and a certain amount of money that they would have to pay, I'm sure the money would be less than whatever the um, smugglers are charging them. And I'm sure that it would be safer um, and not you know, include a lifetime of hiding um, so I'm pretty sure people would go through that process, but, but no, yet somehow people think that people are being lazy. Um, and that can, cannot be farther from the truth. Um, also people, th when the people say that people should stand in line, just like their ancestors did. Well, again, if there was the same process that their ancestors had to encounter in Ellis Island, I'm pretty sure that people would love to do that. And, you know, we'll take them, you know, we'll, we'll take that. The problem with uh, our current immigration legal system is that there are very, very few and very narrow lines for people to, stay in, uh, to stand in. So to be more specific, there's a, a specific category for um, a familiar relationship. So if you're an, uh, if you're from Mexico, so you're from Mexico, uh, Mexican national, and you have a brother or sister in Mexico and you're here, you're, you're a U.S. citizen and you have a brother or sister in Mexico that you want to sponsor, you want, you want them to come to your, you know, to, to be with you for whatever reason that is, that person will probably have to wait in, in, in reality because if you look at the visa bulletin board where anybody can pull it up online and, and find out what the wait time for a category, a specific uh, category for brothers and sisters of U.S. citizens uh, that are coming from Mexico, you will see that the government is taking, oh, I can't remember, let's say 18 years to process them. Like the current date, uh, in other words, what the applications that the government is currently processing were submitted 18 years ago. So you think that's a long time. And you think that, wow, you know, who will wait that long? But the reality is I've been following that line for, for many years now, since 2011. And I can say that what I've seen is that line is actually moving, at a, at a, not at a chronological pace, but at a pace that is about approximately three months per year. So if you multiply 18 times, um, times four, then uh, that you have you know, 72. So honestly, if, if you were a U.S. citizen and you had a brother and sister in Mexico and you wanted to file the paperwork and you asked me, how long will I probably have to wait? I will probably tell you that in reality, you will probably have to wait more than 72 years. Another one that is remarkable is the myth of, of the anchor baby. I mean, I know a lot of times people talk about, well, immigrants come in without any documents, they have a baby, uh, and by birth, they're U.S. citizens. Well, you think that that's it, but not that is not it. In the best case scenario, that would be a 31-year uh, process. 
And I say 31 years because that baby that is a U.S. citizen cannot sponsor their, the parent until the baby turns 21. And if the parent was here without documents for more than a year, then, and the parent cannot adjust from within the country to adjust your status when, if you enter and you don't have status, you cannot adjust from within the country. You have to go outside of the country to adjust your status. And if you have been here without documents for more than a year, you will trigger a 10-year bar, which means you can't come back in for 10 years. Even if you have, you're married to a U.S. citizen, you have a, a U.S. citizen child that is sponsoring you, it doesn't matter. You wait 21 years, your child now has the ability to sponsor you, mother or father of the child. You have to go outside of the country. You were here for more than a year without documents, so you now trigger the 10-year bar, and then you have to wait for 10 years outside of the country. And at that moment, you can have an interview, and hopefully you don't, you're not subject to any grounds of inadmissibility or grounds of deportability if you were here, and uh, hopefully they let you in. So again, a very difficult, very long process that I think a lot of people overlook when they just think that people come here, have the baby, and, and it's a done deal. You, you've got all your problems are taken care of. That's another big myth. How can we think about the relevance of immigrants and immigration in terms of our lived local communities? I think it becomes relevant to us in many ways, in more practical ways than people will think, right? Um, from the restaurant business, or the restaurant industry to construction, uh, the construction industry or the meatpacking industry, meat processing industry. Immigrants are really taking a lot of those jobs, uh, hard labor. And, um, and you, you, when you look at you know, cities like Grand Island, for example, where immigrants are a significant percentage of the population, you can understand how in rural America, where uh, the population is aging very fast and there have been economic consequences that come with a shrinking population in rural America. Towns are, have, are struggling. Well, there is a group of people that will come here and that would uh, open shops and they would buy in those shops. They would sell, they would pay taxes, they would uh, buy cars, they would open bank accounts they would use uh, electricity and phone systems and phone services, buy food. I mean, th this, there's a lot of economic activity that is happening in a lot of towns in rural America that have figured out the way to welcome immigrants. Uh, so what we contribute economically to the state and to the nation, uh, because even those that uh, may not have documents are many, many times have a, a, a temporary, you know, a tax identification, num identification number, and they are paying taxes. So even our social security system will suffer, right? If we don't have people contributing and actually often not getting any of those benefits back. It makes economic sense. And, and so whether you think this is uh, morally the right thing to do, or you think economically this is the right thing to do, I think that people sometimes are short-sighted when they're not welcoming. I think if you want to have a safe community, if you go talk to the, the chief of the Omaha Police Department, he will tell you it's an important component for the police to keep us safe, for the, the, the community to trust them. In our community, if the immigrant community all of a sudden would be uh, scared and afraid that the police is gonna come and deport them, then the police cannot do an effective job of keeping us safe. I'm running 
You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is Emiliano Lerda, the Executive Director of Justice for Our Neighbours in Nebraska. Can you give us a personal narrative that you've worked with or that you've heard about that really gives some personal individual context to some of these issues? Sure. We, have, we, we had a complicated case, one of the earliest, uh, earlier cases that we worked with, you know, where a young lady, her father... So you, uh, a law for permanent resident, uh, married to a law for permanent resident here in the United States, but her biological mother in Mexico couldn't care for her, and she had a, a serious uh, liver disease. And um, so, a grandmother who was in the United States decided to bring her and help her some way because they doctors knew that if she stayed there, she would die. Um, and even though they could afford to, you know, help her when she got to the United States, they just couldn't afford to do the paperwork. And so we had to really, in that, in that case, that was a very complicated case, but we, we were able to get, uh, let's say her name is not real, you know, Rosa, but a very kind young lady with a lot of spark and I, and I promise in future uh, we had to really work hard, and our attorneys worked very, very hard for a long period of time, not only to be able to get her to have lawful permanent residency, but eventually get her to have a U.S. citizenship so that she not only had access to uh, the care, but also uh, eventually to a transplant. Um, and I can guarantee you, Rosa is going to do something amazing with her life. Uh, another case that you know, jumps at me is, uh, let's say, the case of Maria. Uh, again, that's not her real name, but Maria was uh, a victim of domestic violence. And her abusive uh, husband uh, threatened her with deportation because he had status, and she didn't. So she didn't want to talk to anybody. She was so scared. So you can imagine a victim of domestic violence, even if you're a U.S. citizen, you're in fear and you're, you're basically, you feel distant from the world. You feel like nobody really cares or nobody can do anything to help you. So you're, you're trapped in this, in this uh, vicious cycle, in this really uh, horrible situation with an abusive person, checking your emails, checking your phone calls, checking every move that you, you make. Um, and then also threatening with, well, not only I will, get you, Maria, deported, but I'll also get your children, you know, so that you don't see them anymore. 
So those are really difficult situations, even for a U.S. citizen. Now, when you add the dynamics, or you know, of of Maria being undocumented, she had zero hope, and we were able to get in touch with her by by coincidence because that's the other thing. Even to access our services, some people may put themselves at risk, um, but we were able to, uh, you know really be connected with her through a third party. And uh, once we connected with her, we knew that she could definitely be helped by getting a U visa. Uh, and in that case, uh, we were we were able to successfully help her. And, you know, talking to her afterwards, uh, she has her own business. She called her daughters her business partners. And, you know, her life went from seeing zero hope to not only hope, but a future, a future where she can provide an opportunity, not just for herself in terms of the business, but she wants her children to go to school. So that was another powerful case. And, you know, I will always remember that. I guess the powerful phrase is, uh, you know, bring us your huddled masses and of course, inscription on the Statue of Liberty. So how do we look around maybe the rest of the world and, and see what uh, best practices we might be taking lessons from? Well, I think that's a valid point. Um, frankly, um, that's out of my area of expertise because there is there, there is a, um, you know, there will be professional attorneys that are specializing and they may do comparative law studies, uh, looking at different uh, immigration systems. If I were to start guessing just based on the limited information that I know, I'll probably get into a, a dicey situation where I'm, you know, somebody then is going to call you and say, well, that's not true. I, you know, they have some bad practice in that country. So I don't want to point to any specific country, but I want to say that immigration practices that are, that are, that are based on, on fear, um, I think they're short-sighted. I understand uh, people's fear in terms of, you know, we all want to be safe. Terrorism is a bad thing and we, nobody wants to be a victim of a terrorist attack. I mean, it's just, that would be the worst thing. Or, or victims of, 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 of homicides. No, no, that, you know, we all agree on that. I want to be safe. But I think designing your policies in a way that is so exclusionary, not only, I don't think that they will be 100% effective, but they will also um, foment um, <laughs> the uh, hatred towards a given country. So I almost think that it has a, a counterintuitive effect uh, that making you less safe in the long run. We've been talking about other people, but both you and I uh, are immigrants to this country. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about where you came from and how uh, you came about to be here. Thank you, uh, Stuart. And, and I'd love to hear your story too. Uh, you know, when I came here, and I think this is important because it goes to the genesis of why I'm doing what I'm doing and why I, um, I, I do feel like I need to pay it forward because I've been blessed in my life and I had so much luck uh, and people helping me that the least I can do is uh, pay it forward. So um, I first came to this country uh, in 1997 as an international exchange student in high school. Uh, I, I'm from Argentina. I'm from a rural town in the province of Cordoba. The town is called Morteros. And about 13,000, 15,000 people in that town. Lots of corn, lots of soybean, very similar to what you will find in rural Nebraska or rural Iowa. When I first came to the United States, I went to Wilmington, Delaware. 
Um, so something I always tell people, just like many corporations in the United States, I was also incorporated in Delaware. And, uh, but my principal place of business is the Midwest, uh, Nebraska, in Omaha, Nebraska. So um, th- what happened then is I went back to Argentina and I, and I felt like something had changed uh, within me. And um, I really didn't find myself. It wasn't the right fit. You know, when you are uh, not in the right place in, in your life and you, you feel like something is out of sync, there was that deep feeling inside of me. And I was 17, I was, I was young, uh, 18 by the time um, I came back to this country. So basically what happened then is uh, there was a love story of mine with a, with a girlfriend, a uh, long-term girlfriend and another girl. And I wanted to see the cover Bridges of Madison County. And so I came up with this elaborate story for my parents to support me to come for three months to uh, the University of Northern Iowa. I found it online. Uh, I liked the University of Northern Iowa because they had an intensive English course that I could do for three months. So I could get a student visa, come for three months. I could go see the cover bridges of Madison County in Winterset, Iowa, and then I could go home and you know see where we go from there. Uh, but as soon as I got to Cedar Falls, Iowa, I remember uh, the feeling was pretty strong that there's something there's something here in terms of I felt at home. And um, I really love getting to know the community and getting involved. During those three months, well, first of all, my parents in, Ar- in Argentina in, in, in late 1990s, early, early 2000s, uh, there was an economic crisis. And uh, my parents were, no, even though they're both professionals, they're, my, my father's a medical doctor, my mother's a psychologist, uh, my parents are, were in no position to pay for me to come to a uh, university in the United States. Significant out-of-state tuition is very expensive. And so they, they, could, they were not in a position to, to, to afford that. Um, but during those three months, I randomly met uh, a woman uh, that worked in the Department of Residence in, at the University of Northern Iowa. Her name was Rita, Rita Carrillo, uh, and she actually told me, after meeting her for two minutes or less, she said, you need to meet my husband. Uh, his name is Roland, and here's his number, call him. Because I told her I wanted to stay, but my parents couldn't you know, uh, help me. I met Roland, who turns out to be the director of the financial aid office. He met me for two minutes and he said, you know, a lot of people come and ask me for help, uh, but... I believe you're going to do something great with your life. And because I have passion, I will follow my heart and I will help you. So he helped me find the scholarships that I needed to, to pay for school. And he was the catalyst for me to say, okay, now you're being given this golden opportunity by somebody that doesn't really know. I mean, they don't have any ulterior motives. They don't, they're not relatives. I mean, they just met you. They believe in you and what you can do with your life. Now, show them what you can do with your life. Now, do not do, whatever you do, make them proud, right? So immediately I, I started getting involved more heavily in both as I was, already, I was already involved in student groups and organizations. And then I became the student body president. And, and then after that, I went to uh, the um, Drake University for law school. But even that was also uh, a blessing where again, uh, they offered me a public service scholarship uh, because of my promise to make a difference in the public sector, basically. And they said, you know, full tuition and fees for three years in law school. Again, I told my wife, I, this is 
I, this has to be my, my mission in life is public service. And so after law school, um, I went to the University of Arkansas actually to do a master's of law at the University of Arkansas. And uh, I worked for the Iowa Corn Growers for about a year and a half. But when this opportunity came up, I thought I can't let it pass because there was an opportunity for me to come and work in an organization that had to do with, you know, that had to help immigrants. I'm an immigrant myself. And, 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 and I make no mistake about it. I, I am very, very aware of how privileged I have been. Um, even though I work very hard, I made a lot of sacrifices. I'm telling you, I am privileged. And my story, as interesting as it may be, it does not reflect the hardships that most immigrants have to go through to be in this country. And so when you learn about their stories and you sit across the table from them and you look at them in the eye and you look at their children, you realize people are risking their lives to be in this country. They love this country. And so I was very lucky and, and, and people helped me along the way. And without their help and they, them taking an interest in me, there's no way I would be here. Let me ask you this final question. What makes you hopeful for the future in your work? Well, being hopeful is a it's an interesting word. Uh, uh, particularly, you know, when you when you when you open um, any social media um, uh, services or you you go to news and there's there's so much hatred. Uh, I, I believe uh, the dialogue in, in, in this country um, has taken a, a negative turn and. And, and I, I hope that that changes. Um, <clears throat> I hope, and my hope is that we quickly come to realize that even our philosophical differences make us stronger. That we shouldn't shy away from having the difficult conversations. Now, this is a challenge on both sides. I mean, because uh, whether you're a liberal and you hate to have a conversation with a conservative person or you're a conservative and you hate to have a, a conversation with a, a, a liberal person or a progressive person. I, I think that the more polarized that we are and the less that we talk to each other and that we find ways to work together, I think the more that, that, that people with ill intentions uh, from outside the country, from within the country are going to be successful. Um, and I think that's where this country has always prevailed, is, has been able to, 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 to bring, to come together. Um, what gives me hope, I will only, I mean, I know it sounds very, uh, very cheesy, but I will say my children, you know, my children. And I hope that, that I, you know, I pass the torch to them and I, you know, that, that they can, they can actually get past some of the divisive issues that are, to me, a smoke screams to just polarize people uh, and, and focus on what's truly important. With me today has been Emiliano Lerda, Executive Director of Justice for Our Neighbors. Emiliano, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Stuart. Always a pleasure to be with you. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. This is number one champion sound, yeah, yeah Estelle, we about to get down. get down, who the hottest in the world right now, just touch down in London town, <laughs> bet they give me a pound, tell them put the money in my hand right now, set up a motor, we need more seats, we just sold out all the floor seats, take me on a trip, I'd like to go someday, take me to New York, I'd love to see LA, I really want to come pick it with you. 
Welcome back to Lives. I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Dialogue, that part of the show when I'm joined by guests to talk broadly about the show's theme, which this week is immigration. With me in Dialogue are Jonathan Benjamin Alvarado, Omaid Zabi and Michael Sitch-Jones. Omaid Zabi is a staff attorney with the Immigrants and Communities Program at Nebraska Appleseed. Omaid's work mainly focuses on developing positive policy and legal changes related to immigration and to improve the safety and health of meatpacking workers. Prior to Appleseed, Omaid worked as a congressional staffer in Washington, D.C. for Senator Ben Nelson. He earned a B.S. from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and a J.D. with distinction from the University of Nebraska College of Law. In addition to his work at Nebraska Appleseed, Omaid serves on the board of directors for Nebraskans for Civic Reform. Jonathan Benjamin Alvarado is the Assistant Vice-Chancellor for Student Affairs and a Professor of Political Science at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. As the Chief Student Affairs Officer, Jonathan oversees diversity, inclusion and equity issues on campus. He is also a professor of political science with an emphasis on U.S. foreign policy, international development, and national security. Jonathan serves on the board of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Since 1992, he has visited Cuba 30 times for field research on energy and economic development and has conducted interviews with a number of senior government officials in Cuba's energy and related agencies. He has served as a technical advisor to a number of U.S. delegations to Cuba and Latin America on energy development, national security, and strategic non-proliferation trade issues, and regularly speaks on these issues in Washington, D.C. and across the nation. As Director of Development and Marketing, Michael Sitch-Jones provides leadership for donor development and communications at the Urban League of Nebraska. Michael is a graduate of Oklahoma State University, where he studied advertising and marketing and worked in student affairs, focusing on diversity and inclusion. He continues to be involved in social justice issues, focusing on equality, economic empowerment, reproductive justice, and youth empowerment. He most recently served on the boards of GLSEN Omaha, the Friends of Planned Parenthood of the Heartland, and Justice and Witness Ministries, one of the national governing boards of the United Church of Christ. Michael is a member of First Central Congregational United Church of Christ, where his husband, Scott, serves as senior pastor. In April 2015, they welcomed their son, who is a constant delight. So, you know, when people say the word immigrants, I have this romantic idea that it used to call to mind this storied mythology that makes America the great country that it is. But that doesn't seem to be the image and the narrative that is called to mind now when you say the word immigrants. And I just want to get your reaction to what, what that conjures for you. When I say immigrants, what comes to mind? Well, for me, it's, it's family. I mean, my mother was an immigrant to this country. We grew up in a community of immigrants. Um, and from my mother's from the Philippines, so um, a lot of diversity. So you, we didn't feel different because everyone around us was different. So immigrant was a very welcoming in, environment. I would agree with that. And also, I think uh, I'm also from a 
family of immigrants. My parents were immigrants as well. And, um, not only family, but I think, uh, I think of vibrancy and community. I think immigrants can, uh, give that sort of rejuvenation into communities in terms of culture, you know, economics, everything else. I think you see across Nebraska, for instance, in small towns, immigrants are really rejuvenating small towns that were on the decline uh, due to, you know, people moving away or just uh, not moving there. And I think you've seen towns like that really being rejuvenated by immigrants. Um, And so I think people really appreciate that as well. So so yeah, I, I think those are some things that, I, that come to mind when I hear the word immigrant. You know, I grew up in a rural community in California where everybody was from somewhere else and it was really interesting. Um, you know, Japanese, Portuguese, Mexican, Filipino, Chinese. And so until I moved from that community to one that was dominated by, by white Anglo-Saxons, I always felt very comfortable. So when I was thrust into the new environment, all of a sudden I was the other, you know, and a lot of people didn't really know what to make of, of me and my family. We lived in a neighborhood that, you know, uh, was really a a world away from where I initially grew up. And so I, I I really do hear what you're saying as, as in terms of these immigrants now rejuvenating communities, the irony of which is those were originally immigrant destinations. And so the fact that they have to struggle to make their place in those new locations is is rather ironic to me. I really like hearing the word other, because to me it seems as if other has become a pejorative euphemism, as it were, for for immigrants. And this, of course, being a, a radio broadcast, I get to see you guys here um, and, and you, me, but our listeners can't see who we are. And of course, how we make judgments about immigrants, of course, sometimes depends upon how we appear to people. So I have the benefit of um, obviously being handsome, which I need to explain. <laughs> no need to laugh, Michael, thank you. But in addition, I'm, I'm a white man. I want to give you a second just to maybe describe how you think you appear physically. And if you've experienced being other in your lives, I'll begin with that. You know, um, you know, my day job is I'm a professor at a university. And the irony of that is that, you know, somebody goes, so what is it like being a Latino professor uh, or being the only one in, in your university or in your department? To which I always respond, I've been the only one for a long, long time now. I think I go back to when I was in college and taking, you know, advanced courses that I'd look around and I was the only non-white person in the class, and as my graduate school experience was much the same, I'd been, I'd like I say, I've been that for a very, very long time. Well, being a multiracial person myself, I kind of enjoy some ambiguity because no, when you look at me, it's very hard uh, to tell. Uh, the com- most common movie star I've heard is Dean Cain, and we're going to go with that since you don't know any better, the listening public. Um, and so I multiracial household and I grew up in a predominantly African-American community. So the same way with Jonathan, you know, I did not experience being the other until I, and this is in Oklahoma, a small town in Oklahoma. Um, I didn't experience the other until my family moved when I was in high school to a predominantly white 
community. And I like to say it snowed every day where I moved um, because it was so Caucasian. Um, and then even worse so when I went to college initially because it just seemed like the whiteness was so much more obvious, especially when you walk into a space with 120 students in it and you were the only minority. And it's also the first place where I ex experienced uh, racism directed at me for being perceived as another. I don't know what people, I mean, they probably look at a weak, weak person who looks weird. Um, I, I, uh, I actually, so I grew up in a small town in South Dakota. Um, I don't think I knew I was the other until maybe sixth grade when I started getting comments about <laughs> me being different. So I, I think that was sort of an early awakening in terms of, um, looking different. Cause I think up until then, I mean, the town was mostly white, but I never felt uh, that until until around that time period. So, and you know, after that, so my parents are from Afghanistan, and so, um, but even then, things weren't too intense. And then, you know, I think after nine eleven, that's when I sort of it sort of hit home that uh, you know, people who look like me uh, will just be you know looked upon with much more suspicion than it, than it was in the past. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, that sort of, uh, you can just sort of carry that with you. say or you know you're well what are you and I said well I'm Mexican well you're too tall to be Mexican I said well you should meet my six foot nine brother my family has been in this country a hundred years now they escaped the Mexican revolution you know and I and I said well what do you mean I said well my grandmother walked from Mexico to the United States about 400 miles you know, and, and I think that that's really so much the story of so many people in this country, not just the, the most recent arrivals, but it's the history of the nation. And people have forgotten completely about that idea. That reminds me of people, well-meaning people like to ask, where are you from? And I like to say South Dakota, just to see what their reaction is next. Because <laughs> it's a hard question to ask. And I think people even then, like, they don't... It, it, they try not to sound. No, really, where are you from? <laughs> I'm really curious because Jonathan and, and I grew up in, uh, in diverse communities. What about yourself? I can't imagine there are many people from Afghanistan in your community in South Dakota. So did, how does your family talk about it, about being different and being, I don't, probably not calling it the other? In South Dakota, there were a couple of uh, 
bigger cities close by uh, that would that had a lot of immigrants from um, Afghanistan and the surrounding area because that was a big area from where immigrants and refugees came in the 80s. Um, so, but yeah, I, I mean, it was uh, not something that I had a lot of exposure to in terms of being with other people who looked like me. So my friends like to joke that I'm the whitest brown person they've ever met. <laughs> uh, so it's uh, it can be reflective of that, but just also just, yeah, by nature of my upbringing, I, I wasn't around as many people who look like me, which, um, but my parents never, I mean, like being a first generation immigrant, they were more focused on education. They didn't really care about all that as long as I brought home good grades or as best as I could. Cause I think they, they saw, you know, the American dream as, as not only being happy and having a family, but also <laughs> trying to, you know, maximize your talents and to, and, and to get a job that would have you make money, which, you know, can, <laughs> those are the sort of pressures I think a lot of sons and daughters of immigrants can, can have with their parents who, who are immigrants. So what are some of the ways that perhaps we can reorient the narrative towards the positive narratives and stories and images that, that we know are associated with immigration and, and having immigration as part of the sort of American cultural existence? I read a really eloquent essay in Esquire a few months back that talked about the ideas of forgetting and of memory and how they're such powerful motivators in, in human behavior for how we order our or order ourselves as we try to make sense of the things that are happening on an ongoing basis and obviously it made initially a re, you know reference to to the holocaust and, and and the whole sense of how memory and remembrance is a very powerful vehicle to to understanding that and yet it juxtaposed it against the the forgetfulness of Americans, we don't remember, let alone do we, you know, uh, honor the histories of so many people who have come here. And I always get the feeling that, like, as a Latino, that, you know, we're having to now endure the same kind of beatdown that every other immigrant group has had to endure in this country, you know, Irish and dogs off the lawn, you know, the way that the Scotch-Irish were kind of vilified in the South and marginalized to Appalachia and what, what we've done with our African-American population historically. And I think that those are very powerful. And I think for me, it really kind of recalls what I need to really focus on is that I do need to understand the history and I cannot forget those experiences that people have been forced to endure. Nobody chooses to be treated like and yet that seems to be kind of like the recipe of becoming quote unquote American if that's what we allow to occur. I think that's right too in terms of, uh, you know, there have been generations of immigrants in the past who have who have endured the same types of things that are going on today. But I think, you know, any concerns about the current generation of immigrants aren't borne out by any any data or studies. I think there have been studies that have shown that the current generation of immigrants, uh, you know, assimilate just as fast as previous generations. The National Academy of Sciences released that report, and also they just released one that that said that immigrants are a net benefit uh, for in terms of benefits and, and taxes provided. And weird to think you're talking about history, and it's not a, a deep history here. A lot of people are not far removed from when their families were immigrants to this country. So it's weird that there's this separation for those that 
quote unquote, just got here. Um, I guess in how we can challenge that is getting out of that comfort zone because it is comfort. That's what it is. We want to be in a place where we feel safe. Um, and so we have to give up a little bit of safety to expose ourselves to to the larger community. And I'm going to throw it back on the larger community to say that they have a responsibility to insert themselves into communities where they don't feel comfortable. Because going back to ignorance, I think they also don't feel safe being in certain communities as well. I find it ironic to think about this idea that the progress of American modern history has been the the way one group of immigrants achieves becoming American is to find the next wave of immigrants that we can now abuse in some way, shape, or form. And of course, one would hope that we've civilized beyond that, but clearly that is not the case. It does make me wonder then, how can we, if we aspire to being modern and civilized, do we break that cycle where we need someone to be the other in order to give us our cultural identity? Well, you know, the irony of that is is the the United States in particular um, has always depended upon the other to define itself, going all the way back to its conflict with the, with, with with England uh, at the inception of, of this country. And it was really interesting as a, a colleague of mine, she's a German political scientist many years ago, said that the United States relied upon what she called monster creation. That in order for us to justify who we were and our position in the world, that we consistently had to have an, a monster, not just an other. You know, and I said, well, what do you mean by this? Well, you needed to have the Japanese and the Germans, and then you needed to have the Russians, you know, and then you needed to have the Vietnamese, and then you needed to have, you know, uh, immigrants now. And now they've been displaced by the Muslims. So you always have to have this dangerous other, this monster that's threatening, you know, our existence. When, in spite of the fact that it's hardly at all an existential threat, you know, as a matter of fact, it's kind of like a fly on an elephant, you know, in terms of it's the reality of it, and yet. The, the American mind requires that. We require somebody always wearing a black hat. You know, we're always wearing the white hats. We're always coming to the rescue. In some way, it's our nature not only to notice that difference, but to demonize it and to exaggerate it. You look back at some of the very racist, you know, representation of the other, especially during World War II. I mean, you look at even the Germans, you look at especially the characteristics of the, Jap- of the Japanese and how just and, and then going all the way back to, you know, slave times how the feet, the physical features were so exaggerated. So we have this way of amplifying uh, and intensifying difference here in the United States. Look at how popular media, especially in the movies, how we portray the others, especially in these action adventure movies. You know, the Russians are always very well dressed, but they're evil. You know, the the Muslims are always these wild eyed guys. You know, the the Mexican drug cartel. It's just very incredible to me that we continue to persist in portraying these images of other people, because then it helps us to kind of maintain our semblance of some sort of. Uh, that we're normal as opposed to them. How do we make immigration a positive experience at a local level? Well, I think, uh, you know, part of it is just uh, trying to encourage, you know, for instance, at, at Appleseed, we have a welcoming program and that tries to get immigrants and uh, together with, with other 
people have been there, you know, lived in the downer community for a long time who are, who are there to try to come together to, to celebrate, you know, their culture to get together either for like, you know, to celebrate, uh, uh, and eat different types of food or to even watch movies or anything, or just go to a picnic park. Uh, you know, I think there are different things that, that happen there at the local level. And you see that sort of different welcoming events happening across the country, so I think one of the biggest barriers is uh, is actually just to to meet somebody. I think that once you get past that hurdle, a lot of ideas you might have can can melt away just by the interaction with a person or their family, and also just to see you know and to be exposed to uh, you know a different culture or food. And so I think uh, that's one way that. It can happen on, on the local community level. And also just going back to what I said earlier, I think, you know, having immigrants uh, come into, you know, smaller towns like that can really help revitalize communities. And you see different types of restaurants, you know, opening up. I think I saw a story uh, in the paper last week about a town, I think it was in Illinois. And I think the the town had voted overwhelmingly for Trump. And then there was a person there who was undocumented, who um, I think was detained and he owned a restaurant there and he was a vital part of the community. And all of a sudden people were up in arms over his detainment uh, because, you know, they, they knew him, they knew his family, uh, they knew that he was a part of their community. And so I think in instances like that, you know, you see the disconnect of people because of this idea they have of of who somebody is or who a group of people are. It's an intentional thing. I mean, it's something that you have to work at every day. It isn't enough, you know, coming from a corporate or a nonprofit environment where, okay, we have this policy, check in our box, moving on. Okay, so how are we living that? What are we doing every day to be a, being a welcoming environment to celebrate and to include uh, in that note of celebration too. I mean, re- celebrating the history that we are, you know, a country of, of immigrants. With me in dialogue have been Jonathan Benjamin Alvarado, Michael Sitch Jones, and Omad Zabi. Thank you so much for being here, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. Behind-the-scenes management was provided by the magnificent Marion Fay. Lives is a production of Squish Talks. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. I'm Stuart Chittenden.